Let me invite you to take out your Bibles and turn them open to Mark chapter 2 as we continue our journey uh, through the Gospel of Mark together. Mark chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that there's some provided on the table in the foyer for you to grab on your way out. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures. Uh, Mark chapter 2. As you're finding your way there, uh, let me encourage you to consider a question. And that question is this. What is the one distinct contribution the gospel gives to our lives and to the world? What is the one unique or distinctive benefit provided our lives and provided to the world through the gospel? Now, of course, that's a question that can be answered in many different ways by many different people, depending on usually kind of falls in line with what a person's passions or priorities are. So there are some who would love to champion the fact, well, the gospel, it gives us a new ethic to live by. And they may point to the benefit of morality that the gospel produces. I mean, you consider how the gospel encourages us to love our enemies and to forgive those who offend us. I mean, that's a wonderful, beautiful ethic to be carried out by those who are following Jesus in the world. So there are some who may affirm the morality produced by the gospel. But then there are others who may point to the social responsibility that the gospel compels us into, that the gospel is what the the benefit the gospel brings into the world is whenever it rallies those who are following Jesus to go to the defense of the defenseless, to exercise justice, to uh, love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with our God through this world, meeting the needs of those around us. There are some who may point to the social responsibility that the gospel uh, encourages and the gospel compels. But then there are others who may uh, look inward and the effects that the gospel has on a person's soul, and they may point out to the benefit of, of a sense of tranquility or peace that the gospel produces, an inner tranquility, a, a spiritual uh, peace that the gospel brings about in a person's life and that is available to the world as well. But then others may point out that the gospel is that which brings a person uh, some measure of of happiness, some measure of joy, and they may point out uh, the gospel's effect in those areas. Now, I ask the question and I provide those possible answers uh, with the intention of I want to affirm, yes, there are grains of truth in each one of those. There are grains of truth in each one of those responses to the effects the gospel has on a person's life and the effects the gospel produces in the world, but those effects are not necessarily distinct. There are other religions, there are other spiritualities, there are other things that happen in this world that can give some semblance of, that can inspire people towards social responsibility. There are people in the world who are attracted to morality and high standards of living and loving and those types of things. There, there are other forms of spirituality that may, may have a pragmatic effect on a person's life, giving them a sense of tranquility or peace or happiness. So it is not sufficient for you and I to point to either one of those as being the one unique or the one distinct feature or benefit that the gospel brings to the world. But there is one distinct feature, there is one unique element that the gospel provides that no other religion, no other spirituality, no other aspect of life on this planet can produce. It's one aspect, one feature that transcends everything that I've just mentioned, and it's the one aspect that actually accounts for all those other elements. Of all the 
benefits, of all the needs, of all the fruits the gospel produces in our lives and in the world, the one unique and distinct feature concerns the forgiveness of our sins. It's the forgiveness of sins. That's the one unique and the one distinct feature that only the gospel can produce. I mean, you consider uh, my home for an example. In my house, there are many rooms that I enjoy. I love our living room. I love that space that I share with my kids and my wife that, that gets chaotic at times as we play games and as we wrestle and as we play basketball, as, as, as Asher calls basketball, and we put a little goal up on one of the chairs in the living room, and we just go after it, and he's, basketball, basketball. I love those moments. It's, it's a very precious room to me. I love our kitchen. Our kitchen is a wonderful room. It's a blessing to me and my family. I love to cook for my family. I love going in there. I love it when, more importantly, Bung Wai comes in. Our grandma, my mother-in-law, comes in and, and cooks in the kitchen. It's, it's a wonderful meal that's usually produced in that regard. I love the kitchen. It's a good room to have in the house. I love my bedroom. I sleep great in my bed. When I'm asked to sleep somewhere else, I don't sleep very well. I toss and I turn. It's not very comfortable or cozy to me. But when I have my bed in my room, it's a blessed thing. It's a wonderful thing. I, I love even the laundry room. It has its purpose, right, in our family. It's able to wash all of Asher and Delaney's clothes after they're rolling around in the mud outside and doing all the things that they do as, as little ones. And so all of those rooms have their place, the playroom, the bathroom, the kitchen. Every room has its place. Every room serves to provide blessing and life to me and my family. But understand that each one of those rooms, they are built together upon one foundation. There's one foundation that accounts for the joys that happen in each and every one of those rooms. And so when it comes to the one distinct or unique feature that the gospel brings into the world, yes, there are many rooms in the gospel. There are many blessings of the gospel, but there is one foundation. There is one foundation upon which everything else is built, and that one foundation concerns the forgiveness of our sins. And the reason why that is foundational, the reason why that is at the bottom of everything is because you were created for God. Each and every person in this room was created by God and for God. You were designed for relationship with your creator. But there's, a, there's something called sin that hinders you from enjoying that friendship, from enjoying that relationship, from knowing the creator in a positive way. Your sin is standing in the way. And so until your sin is dealt with, until forgiveness comes into your life, you're not going to experience the full benefits of the gospel. And so forgiveness of sins then becomes the fund, the, our most fundamental need in life. It's our most fundamental need, and it is the one need Jesus points out in this story. It's the most fundamental need that Jesus goes after in the lives of these men who's come to him, one of whom desperately, desperately needed physical healing. This is how the chapter begins in chapter 2. It says in verse 1, and when he, referring to Jesus, returned to Capernaum. You see, Jesus, before this moment, had been traveling all throughout Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's been healing the sick and performing miracles. His popularity is at an all-time high. The polls are off the charts. And so when people catch wind of Jesus returning to Capernaum, where it all began, they flock to him. They come to the home that Jesus is at. Most likely this home is Peter's mother-in-law's house, the same house that he hung out in earlier in chapter 1. 
And so Jesus has returned to Capernaum and his popularity is out there. So when word reaches everyone, they come to Jesus and this is what, this is the scene. It says, it was reported that he was at home referring to Jesus and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So Jesus was speaking. He was declaring the gospel of the kingdom of God and and people were so crammed into the home that it got to the point where you couldn't fit another body through the door. And then it gets into verse 3, and they, referring to this group of, of friends, and they came bringing to him, bringing to Jesus a paralytic, a person who could not walk. And he was carried by four men. And when they got there, they couldn't get near to Jesus because of the crowd, so they had to get creative. They had to engage into some, in some creative problem solutions. And so the way homes were designed back in the first century, they didn't have their stairwells on the inside of the home. Their stairwells were on the outside of the homes. So you would walk up the stairs to get on the roof and sometimes people would sleep on the roofs of their home and they would have other activities take place on their roofs. And so this group, when they arrived with this paralyzed man and they couldn't get to Jesus, they decided to take this outer stairwell, presumably, and go up to the roof and then try to figure out some other way to bring this guy to Jesus. And so in their desperation and in their determination, they actually start wreaking havoc on the home, causing damage. And as Jesus is preaching the word, eventually uh, soot and mud and, and hay and everything else that formed the roofs of these homes began to fall before him as these guys were cutting a hole into the roof and sunlight began to beam down and everybody turned their attention up as these four friends lowered this paralyzed man to Jesus. That's desperation. That's determination. That is, I got to get to Jesus because he's the one guy who can help me out. Now, when you step into that scene and you hear this, it makes sense as to why this guy would want to get to Jesus so badly. He was paralyzed and wanted healing. That's what he came to Jesus for. That was his felt need, so to speak. That was what was most immediate in his life, was a desire for physical healing, which is what makes Jesus' response to these four guys all the more striking, all the more surprising. It says in verse 4, And when they could not get near to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus, get this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. That's a strange reply. That's a head-scratcher kind of reply. They didn't come for forgiveness. They came for healing, right? And so what is Jesus doing? Why would he respond to this guy's felt need by addressing the fundamental need he has for healing? Well, the reason for that is because Jesus doesn't simply meet needs in a person's life. When you come in contact with Jesus, his first engagement in your life usually is to rearrange your perception of what's most important. And so what Jesus does for this guy is he rearranges the perception of his needs. Yes, he needed healing. Yes, that was a legitimate desire. But more importantly, Jesus is going after his foundation. Jesus is going after his most fundamental need, which is the forgiveness of his sins. You see, you and I as people living our lives through the world that is, as we're journeying through this place called earth, we, we, there's a tendency for our felt needs to overshadow our most fundamental need. There's a tendency in our lives for our felt needs, that which is most immediate or that which is most strikingly frustrating about our lives, there's a tendency for those things to overshadow our most fundamental needs. 
You consider some felt needs that a person may have. Sickness is surely a felt need. If a person is sick, usually all they can think about is getting better. They want to be healed. They want medicine. They want a doctor to prescribe something that can fix that immediate felt need in their life. But it's not always something physical. It can be something emotional. Loneliness is a felt need in many people's lives in this city. We live in such a densely populated area There's a reality, something called urban isolation, where we are surrounded by people all the time, but it's possible to be surrounded by people, densely so, and yet still feel utterly lonely, still feel like you're all by yourself. And the felt need of loneliness is a powerful need. It is a powerful emotion. If we have that, we, we want so badly for companionship. So we want a girlfriend, we want a boyfriend, we want a spouse, we want somebody in our lives because we feel lonely. But then others perhaps may be something like boredom. Felt need is just getting up one day after next and doing the same thing over and over and over again so that you get stuck in a monotonous routine and so boredom is plaguing your life and all you can think about is how bored you are. And so we have a variety of felt needs, some physical, some emotional, many of which are legitimate, many of which are understandable. But Jesus wants us to understand tonight that his ultimate desire for us, his, the way he wants to approach our lives is by rearranging our perception of what's most important and what's most fundamental and what's most fundamental in each one of our lives is this need we have for our sins to be forgiven because so many of us are building our lives on the wrong foundation you see when our felt needs begin to overshadow our fundamental need all of a sudden we start searching for superficial saviors we start looking for superficial saviors to satisfy our felt needs. Superficial saviors that just can't go deep enough, right? Superficial saviors that are just faulty foundations upon which we are building our lives. For example, if some of you, perhaps if sickness or poor health is a felt need you have, you may look to a superficial savior like exercise or a better diet and you might think to yourself well if I just start exercising more if I start eating better if I follow this plan or this regimen then I can bring healing to my life or those of you who might be lonely you might think well I'm going to go after a superficial savior in another human being I need that girlfriend I need that boyfriend I need that husband I need that wife and so we start looking for superficial saviors hoping that they could satisfy our felt needs. And what ends up happening is we start building our lives upon faulty foundations, building our lives upon things other than God. Now, when I say that, I want you to know that I'm not saying that felt needs are inherently wrong. And I'm not saying superficial saviors are inherently wrong. There's nothing wrong with wanting companionship, right? There's nothing wrong with wanting a healthy body. There's nothing wrong with wanting to improve life in various kinds of practical ways. The problem arises, the problem arises when we start thinking that if we get that, if we get those superficial saviors, then all will be well. That's as far as we go. That's as deep as we go with these things. That if we get this or we get that, then all will be well in our lives. 
But here's the deal. Jesus loves you far too much to let you settle for a superficial savior. He loves you far more than that. And he loved this guy in this passage far more than that. So when he came with this legitimate need, he wanted healing. He wanted to walk. He wanted to stand. He wanted to dance. He wanted to run. He wanted to experience life in this other kind of way. He no longer wanted to be defined by his disease. He wanted healing, yet Jesus loved him too much to simply heal his body. So his first word to this guy wasn't a word of healing. His first word to this guy was a word of forgiveness. Going after his most fundamental need. His most fundamental need. You see, Jesus knows that it's possible for you and I to get some of those things that we want. It's possible to get some of those things that we want and only end up frustrated by them in the end. It's possible for some of these felt needs to be satisfied by a superficial savior only to find that that superficial savior ends up frustrating you in the end. There's a woman by the name of Cynthia Heimel who used to write for a publication called The Village Voice. It's a website and a, and a journal, uh, a magazine that's really popular in New York City. And, and because of her job, she met a lot of actors and actresses who really wanted fame, who really wanted to make it in that particular trade. But oftentimes he would, she would meet these actors and actresses before they hit it big. And they would be working as waiters and waitresses or they would be uh, punching tickets at theaters, doing these other jobs, just hoping that one day, that one day they could make it. And, and she points out how frustrated they are in those current situations and how they think that once they make it, then all will be well in their lives. And what's interesting is that as she would meet them, she would then see their rise. She would see some of them make it. And she would step into relationship with them and she would talk with them and she would see whether or not anything changed once they got what they thought they needed most. And she reflected on her experience with some of these celebrities and I just wanted to share her words with you. Now her words are, these are her words and they're kind of hard but uh, I, think the, the, I think it's very helpful for our thinking. This is what she said. She, writes, she wrote one time, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once, get this, perfectly pleasant human beings. But now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked. They pushed. But the morning after each one of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened, but nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them to howling and insufferable people. And then she goes on to draw this conclusion, and it's not the conclusion that Jesus would draw on anyone's life, but this is the conclusion she drew. She said, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. But you know, when you step into this story of Mark chapter 2, Jesus doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't give this guy, uh, he doesn't simply bring healing to this guy's body. He goes after his ultimate need, his ultimate desire. He goes after a desire and a need that he wasn't even aware of at the moment. He says, your sins are forgiven. This is what Jesus does. He meets our most fundamental need for forgiveness, for reconciliation, to be brought back into a right relationship with God. Now, if Jesus is going to do that, understand, that means Jesus alone is qualified to meet our fundamental need. 
He's not a superficial savior. He's the only savior who can account for this bedrock fundamental need that every person has. This is why when you look at the reply in this moment, after he says, my son, your sins are forgiven, this is why there's that response. He says there's a response in the hearts of some of the scribes who are present in the room and they started questioning amongst themselves, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. He's blaspheming. And then know that when they hear Jesus tell this guy that his sins are forgiven, they're only thinking logically in this moment. They know that sin can only be forgiven by God. And so when it comes to our most fundamental need, there's only one person in the universe who can do something about it. Jesus, forgiveness is Jesus' unique prerogative. He's the only one capable of doing something about this condition. This is why they respond, and they're right in their response. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And again, they're just thinking logically in this moment because you know that when it comes to forgiveness in any interpersonal relationship, the only person who can really forgive someone is the person who was offended, right? So if I were to walk up to Wes tonight while he's leading us in our worship through giving and I just cold cock him, I just punch him right in the face, in that moment, I can't go to John and say, John, will you forgive me for punching Wes in the face? Who cares if John forgives me? It wasn't against him, right? The person I would need to be forgiven by would be Wes. So I would need to go to him because only the offended can offer forgiveness. So when Jesus says to this guy, your sins are forgiven, he's acting in accordance with his person. He's revealing to everyone present that he's more than a man. He is the God-man. And he's the only one qualified to forgive sins. When he says this, he's saying, all of your sins are ultimately against me. And I'm the only one who can forgive them. This is what that old school cat named Irenaeus was getting after when he made that statement you read earlier. He said, how can sin be rightly remitted unless the very one against whom one has sinned grants the pardon? And you see evidence of this all throughout the scripture. Back in the Old Testament, there was a guy named David. David was a highly respected king, highly regarded man of God, but he was highly imperfect. And there was a moment in his life where he committed some atrocious sins. He actually conspired to have a man killed because he hooked up with his wife. He hooked up with his wife, got her pregnant, and then had to cover his tracks by having this guy killed, and he, then he could take her into his into his house, into his home. And so after committing these, these atrocious sins of murder and adultery, there, there came a moment where, Jesus, where David was confronted by a prophet and he was, his sin was brought out into the light and David then responded appropriately by confessing and repenting, by seeking forgiveness. And many scholars believe that his response in that situation was to write a psalm to write Psalm 51, for example. And what's interesting is that you read through Psalm 51, listen to what David says in this moment. Psalm 51, verse 4, he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. Now that is striking, because you would think, what about Uriah's family? What about those who are grieving his death? Didn't he sin against them? Yes, in a sense he did. But in a deeper sense, he sinned against someone else. 
in a deeper sense, he sinned against the God who created Uriah in his image. So when he offended Uriah, when he murdered Uriah, ultimately he was sinning against the God who had created and loved Uriah. And when he comes to this moment, he says, against you and you only have I sinned because all of our sin is ultimately against God. And when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, he's declaring with no hesitation that he is God. He is God. And he forgives sin in accordance with his person. This is Jesus' prerogative because it is against whom we have sinned. But notice what goes down in this passage. There's an interesting moment. Right after he says your sins are forgiven in verse 6, where does this question arise? Where does the question about blasphemy or the statement about blasphemy arise? It says in verse 6 that it arose in their hearts, in the hearts of the scribes. So think about that for a moment. Because what that is telling us is that Jesus discerned this question surfacing in their hearts. They weren't verbalizing it. They weren't speaking it out loud to one another necessarily. And so this reminds us that Jesus, if he's able to discern the hearts of everyone in the room as he's talking about forgiveness, that has huge implications for our lives today. Because some of us right now are living under the illusion of thinking that what we do in private is no big deal. That our hidden thoughts that are never spoken are really no big deal. They don't harm anyone. I don't voice anything. The stuff I do when I'm alone in front of my computer when nobody else is around, it really doesn't matter because it's not affecting any other person. And you're forgetting that Jesus discerns the heart. Jesus sees everything. Jesus is always a part of the equation. You are never acting in isolation. You are never acting in independence. You are always acting under the gaze of your God. And your Jesus, your Savior, knows precisely what is going on when nobody else does. He discerns the heart. But here's the good news. Although Jesus knows all of that, because he knows all of that, Jesus is not surprised by it. He's not surprised by your hidden struggles. Not only is he not surprised by it, Jesus ultimately isn't stopped by it. He isn't deterred from forgiving you by what you do that nobody else knows about. This is why he's such a forgiving savior. He's come to deal with those types of issues. He's not surprised by your sin and he's not stopped by it either. And in this moment, Jesus is bringing all this, or Mark is calling our attention to all of this by pointing these details out in this story. But then the dialogue continues and it says that Jesus, after he discerned what was in their hearts, he then turned to them and he asks a question in verse 8. He asks them a question, why do you question these things in your hearts? Calls them out, right? That probably called them to kind of stand up straight and shrink up a little bit because of Jesus was calling them out on something that they weren't necessarily verbalizing. And he says, why do you question these things in your heart? And then he poses a perplexing question. A puzzling question, another head-scratcher kind of question. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? How would you have answered that question? What do you think is easier, to say that a person's sins are forgiven, or to raise or to heal someone who is paralyzed? Now, my first reaction to this, I was thinking about this week, the the apparent implication of that question is that the harder of those two options is to actually give the paralyzed man 
the ability to walk. That would seem like the harder thing to do. And scholars have, have, many scholars have actually concluded, yes, that's probably where the accent should fall about which is tougher. But then there are others, and I tend to lean with these others, that, that this question is intentionally puzzling. It's intentionally a head-scratcher because it is a question that can and should be answered in more than one way. It can and should be answered in more than one way because, yes, on a, in a sense, it is harder for, Jesus, for someone to heal a paralyzed man than it would be to say that a person's sins are forgiven. But you know as well as I do that Jesus doesn't simply say that our sins are forgiven. He actually affects our forgiveness, doesn't he? He affects forgiveness. And you see this go down in the very next verse where he uses a a description about himself that cues us into this dynamic. Listen to what he says. He says, but that you may know, and here it is, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he uses that phrase, son of man. And understand that that phrase, this is the first time it shows up here, shows up a few times later in the gospel. Every time that phrase is used from here on out, it is used in connection with the suffering and the death of Jesus. Mark 8.31, for example, this is what goes down later. Mark 8.31, this this is what it says. It says, and Jesus began to teach them that the son of man, there it is again, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, Jesus was not simply a miracle worker. Jesus was the Savior. And when he heals or when he forgives this man of his sins before giving him the ability to walk again, in that moment the shadow of the cross fell across Jesus' path and he was speaking in anticipation of what he would do later. So yes, he forgives sin in accordance with his person, but he forgives sin in this moment in anticipation of his cross. He's going to the cross and it will be infinitely harder for Jesus to affect forgiveness by what he will suffer there than it was for Jesus to heal this paralyzed man. Infinitely harder for him to affect the forgiveness of our sins and the reason for that is because forgiveness is never free. Forgiveness is never free. You've never freely forgiven a person in your life. Forgiveness always comes as at a cost. It always comes. Somebody takes a hit when forgiveness is given. There was a guy by the name of, of I'm sorry, Dan, Dan Hamilton wrote a fascinating book called Forgiveness. I would encourage everyone to read it. And he, and he talks about interpersonal relationships, and he talks about the cost of forgiveness. And in this book, he describes a relationship he had with a woman. This woman bailed on him, and, and he had to forgive her, and he describes the process he went through to do do so. And I think when you hear his process, you begin to see that forgiveness is never free. It always comes with a cost. This is what he's saying. He says, once upon a time, I was engaged to a young woman who changed her mind. I forgave her, but only in small sums over a year. They were made whenever I spoke to her and refrained from rehashing the past. Whenever I renounced jealousy and self-pity. Whenever I saw her with another man. Whenever I praised her to others when I wanted to slice away her reputation, those were the payments, but she never saw them. And her own payments were unseen by me, but I do know that she forgave me. 
He says, forgiveness is more than a matter of refusing to hate someone. It is also a matter of choosing to demonstrate love and acceptance to the offender. Pain is the consequence of sin. There is no easy way to deal with it. Wood, nails, and pain are the currency of forgiveness, the love that heals. If any of you have ever been in a situation where you've forgiven someone, it came at a cost to you. It cost you your ego. It cost you your pride. It cost you, you had to sacrifice your desire to get back, right? It cost you something. And so when Jesus talks about forgiving sins in this moment, Understand that he's doing this in anticipation of his crucifixion. Well, he will go to the cross and he will pay the ultimate price for human sin. He will take the hit our sin deserves when he dies upon the cross. This is why Mark would tell us later in Mark chapter 10 that the Son of Man came not to serve, but to be served. But to be, I'm sorry, not to be served, but to serve. But to serve how? To serve by giving his life as a ransom for many, by making a payment. The cost of forgiveness, his blood, his death on the cross. Forgiveness is never free. And so when he forgives sins in this moment, it's in anticipation of what he will soon do when he goes to the cross. But then I want you to consider then, when you look back at this story, what is forgiveness tied to? What does he forgive What does he tie his forgiveness to in this moment? Well, you look back up into verse 5, and it says, and you see that Jesus tied their forgiveness to their faith, right? And you begin to see, not only is forgiveness our most fundamental need, you begin to see that forgiveness is not only the unique prerogative of Jesus, you begin to see that forgiveness is ignited by faith in Jesus. How are our sins forgiven? They are forgiven when we trust in Jesus' death on the cross. When we rely upon the fact that he paid the price for our forgiveness. He took the hit our sins deserve. We put our faith in Jesus. And as we do so, forgiveness is ignited. But understand, we see some things about faith in this story that we really need to consider well together. One is that faith, you need to understand that faith in Jesus is an active deal. Faith in Jesus is is active. When these guys got to the home and they saw they couldn't reach Jesus, they went to action. They determined to get to Jesus and they did some radical things. They destroyed somebody else's home because they wanted to get to Jesus. That's an active faith. That's the kind of faith that is defined in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. When we read, and without faith, it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, but not just that, believe that he rewards those who seek him. He has forgiveness for those who would come to him and trust him and press into him. Faith is highly active. Now that doesn't mean that you must come to Jesus perfectly. It doesn't mean that your activity in your Christian life must be perfect in every moment of every day. In fact, many of us come to Jesus imperfectly. In fact, many of us come to Jesus with our felt needs, and we want Jesus to do something about our felt needs. But when we get to Jesus, we must allow him to rearrange our perception of what's most important. So not only do you see that faith is active, you must also see that faith is submissive. Faith allows Jesus to set the agenda for the relationship. 
And if he says we have a more fundamental need than our felt needs, then we submit to Jesus. We listen to Jesus. We hear him say, your sins need forgiven. And then we hear him say, your sins are forgiven. So we come to Jesus, and that doesn't mean we come to Jesus perfectly. Many times we do it imperfectly. We come bringing the wrong thing, but Jesus, in his goodness, rearranges those needs. He rearranges those desires, and we submit to him. Now, see, some of you are distraught in your relationship right now with Jesus because you think that your faith must be perfect, but Jesus is never looking for a perfect faith. Jesus is just looking for faith to be present. It's not perfect faith that Jesus honors. It's not perfect faith that ignites the forgiveness of your sins. He just wants faith to be present. This is why later you'll hear Jesus say that the faith that is the size of a mustard seed is capable of moving mountains. A mustard seed is tiny. That's not very impressive. But Jesus says that's the kind of faith that he blesses. That's the kind of faith that ignites forgiveness. It ignites the kingdom in a person's life. And it's not a very robust or impressive faith. It's a very small faith. But Jesus isn't looking for a perfect or a flashy faith. He just wants faith to be present. He just wants us to recognize that he's capable of doing the things he says he does for people. It's the difference between believing a chair is capable of holding you up when you sit in it and then actually taking that seat and leaning upon it and resting upon it and expecting it to hold you up. All Jesus is asking us to do is to sit in him, rest in him, trust him. It's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. And Jesus is a good enough savior to handle whatever imperfect imperfect faith that you are carrying right now. Just come to Jesus, submit to Jesus, and he'll do the rest. Faith in Jesus is active. Faith in Jesus is submissive. But then you also need to understand that faith in Jesus is formative. When you do this, when you get into this moment, when you are putting your faith in Jesus, understand that that's not simply theological. We're not talking about something that exists in the head of a human being. We're talking about something formative, something that is practical, something that shapes our lives, something upon which our identities are now built and all the blessings and all the joys of the gospel come together because we're living on this one foundation. We're talking about a formative faith. And you see this in verse 5, right? When you put your faith in Jesus, he forms your identity. Listen to what he says to the guy. He says, my son... That's an affectionate label. That's an affectionate description. And there's a sense in which everyone who puts their faith in Jesus hears those same words from God, my son, my daughter. And our identity is formed by our faith in Jesus. And when our identity is formed by our faith in Jesus, then everything begins to flow from that. And we begin living our lives in light of who we are in Jesus. And then suddenly we find the resources needed to live out the ethics of the kingdom of God. We find the resources needed to engage in social responsibility. We find the resources needed to have that inner tranquility, that peace. We find the resources needed to live a life of joy and contentment because our identity has been formed. It is fixed. And so I'll just give you one example of where this may flesh itself out at. Not only does it form your identity, it also forms your community, affecting the relationships you share with everyone around you. 
This is why earlier in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus is talking about forgiveness, he says, everyone who I have forgiven will be forgiving people, and they will forgive others. Understand that when you put your faith in Jesus and that faith begins to form you, your identity is built on Jesus, all of a sudden you are given the emotional humility needed to forgive anyone who offends you. The emotional humility and the emotional desire. You recognize yourself not as above anyone. You recognize yourself in an egalitarian relationship with everyone so that you are able to forgive anyone who has offended you because ultimately your sin against God has been forgiven. And that gives you emotional humility so that you can forgive those who trespass against you. And your faith in Jesus begins forming not just your identity, it begins forming your community, it forms your relationships, it forms your interactions with other human beings. This kind of faith changes our lives. It is this kind of faith that we're living out as a community. Our faith in the Hallows Church is not perfect, but it is present. We're a community of people who've put our faith in Jesus. We've actively put our trust in him We are a community of faith who are submitting everything to Jesus, letting him arrange and rearrange everything in our lives and in our church. We're a community of faith who's who's being formed by our faith in Jesus. We're all growing. We're all being shaped. We're all growing. We're all learning, and it's a beautiful thing. And if you're in this room tonight and you perhaps have never put your faith in Jesus, you've never experienced, you've never had that foundation laid in your life, the forgiveness of your sins, let me encourage you. Come to Jesus Put your faith in Jesus. If you're waiting to have a full understanding of who Jesus is, don't wait for that. It's not a matter of having all your questions answered. It's not a matter of having everything figured out about Jesus and all the other religions and all the other options in the world. It's about coming to Jesus, not with a perfect faith, but with an imperfect faith and trusting in a perfect Savior, the one who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. So tonight, the way we're going to respond is by opening up the table. The way in which we exercise our faith and the way in which we continue to submit our faith and the way in which our faith continues to form us as a community of faith. Every week as we come to the table and we partake in what's called the Lord's Supper. And this is a a meal that we share in together, a little mini meal. Obviously, you're not going to get a full belly by doing it. It's a little cracker, but you're going to take that cracker and you're going to hear the words of the gospel. Somebody's going to share with you this This bread reminds us of the body of Jesus which was given for you. And you're going to take that bread, you're going to dip it in the cup, and you're going to be reminded of the gospel. This cup, this juice here, (laughs) reminds us of the forgiveness of our sins, the fact that Jesus has done something for us. And we partake of this meal every, every week. And as we do so, our faith is being formed and we're growing and we're worshiping and we're learning to love, learning to serve, learning to do all the things that Jesus has called us to do. So I'm gonna pray for us. I'm gonna open up the table. And if you've put your faith in Jesus, I invite you to come to the table at your own pace. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, you haven't put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, let me encourage you to refrain from coming to the table. There's a couple of prayers provided in the worship guide for you to read through and reflect upon that will help maybe give some language to what you may be experiencing or sensing over these next few moments. And if you would like to 
talk with someone about whatever's going on in your life, utilize that communication card. I'm hanging out down here after the gathering. I'd love to meet up, have a talk, and we'll uh, pray together, talk together, answer any questions you might have. But let me pray for us, and then we'll move into a time of response. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the sending of your son Jesus to meet our most fundamental need. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that his life and his death and his resurrection provides us. Father, I thank you for forgiveness, and I pray that you would give us grace to grow and to live and to love in light of the fact that we are forgiven people. So we ask that you would be honored now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move among us all in Jesus' name, amen.